Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Paul Napthali is the co-founder of Rampersand VC, the early stage Australian technology fund established in 2013 to help close the funding gap that many Australian and New Zealand startup founders experience. Paul returned to Australia after working in Silicon Valley and in the UK to sprinkle some of the magic he'd learned as a marketing and strategic communications guru for a number of highly successful venture-backed technology companies. Paul has had some fantastic investment wins, but he's always looking for ways to make himself a better investor and make the Australian ecosystem stronger. Paul, great to see you. Great to see you, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. I understand that you did something remarkable last week and took some time off work. How are you feeling after that? Uh, I think the team is quite terrified because I've come back enormously energised, ready for a nice little sprint to the end of the year and hopefully the end of lockdowns for us all. Well, I'm really fascinated in terms of how you found yourself in this spot in Melbourne doing what you're doing now because it sort of feels to me like the world has always been your oyster. You could have chosen to be in all sorts of different places. And when you were growing up, what did you imagine you would be? Well, I grew up in Melbourne, so home is home. And actually, I always dreamt I'd be in advertising. It sounds really strange, doesn't it? Maybe a little bit sad, but I, I loved advertising and that was my ambition. I did a business degree in marketing. That was what I thought was the best way into Adland. Wasn't quite a creative, so went down the business path. But I was at uni in the early and mid-90s and this internet thing came along it sort of both terrified and fascinated me and, and I was late in my degree and I said to the head of the course, I think this, you know, this internet thing is going to change how we do marketing, I think. And the guy said, yeah, I, I think it is. So, yeah, I've got a couple of electives. I'd love to do something around, you know, the internet and its impact on marketing. He said, great idea. The only problem is we've got no one to teach it to you. And so that, that sort of set me on the tech path way back then. But but I did go into advertising. It was actually my first job, but it didn't last very long. And that sort of awareness at a young age of what was out there, is that sort of a reflection of your personality? Because there was lots of us in the 90s that had a sort of a vague idea that, you know, the internet was a thing, but didn't really make those connections between how it would impact the profession that we were choosing for ourselves. What gave you the capacity to join those dots? I think I am sort of a curious person by nature, but I have had mentors, and I wouldn't have called them mentors back then, but people I looked to for advice or learnt off and had around. And, and one guy in particular, when I set my mind to being in advertising, was like at school still before I even went to uni, and we're talking about how you weigh up options in your life and opportunities. 
And he said, you're in a fortunate and privileged position, you're going to have options. And so you are going to have to work out how to weigh them up. And he said, one thing that stood him in good stead is sort of write them all down, consider them, think through them, and then sleep on it. And probably the one that scares you the most is the one you're going to get the most out of. And the internet scared me because I was sort of had this path all laid out. I was ready to go. I was, I wouldn't say I was a diligent student, but I'd found my way to get through university. And the rules were about to change. I was like, you've got two options here. You can sort of stick your head in the sand, which was, I have to say, was my initial instinct. Like, no, this is not fair. I've learned all this stuff. I don't want to throw this rule book out. So, or you recognise you're 20 years old and your whole life's ahead of you and these rules are about to change whether you like them or not. And as much as a 20-year-old boy likes to think they're the centre of the universe, probably wasn't that central to be able to change that path. And so it was sink or swim. So it sort of feels like, you know, from afar, each time you've had that branch in the road, you've taken the one that's the scarier option. So you started with a job in Melbourne. What was the scary option that you took after that? Uh, Was to move to London. I was offered partnership. I'd gone from advertising into a PR agency. Well, actually, probably the next one was PR, where a woman, Lara Carey, who I continue to stay close with to this day, and is a great lever mentor of mine, she said, you're clearly not happy in advertising. Come into PR. I was like, I've got no idea what PR is. That's really scary. But she's like, these are all the things that you like. You like sort of storytelling and sales and creativity and business management and relationship management. Okay, you can get that all in PR. I was like, fine, I'm just going to jump and let's see how that goes. Got off a partnership at that agency. I was like, geez, I'm 27 now. Partnership means staying in Melbourne my entire life, probably, because in my mind, I was, that's a five year commitment. I'll probably get married and have kids, and that's Melbourne for me done. Like, okay, all I'd wanted was partnership. And then I got offered it. I said, actually, I'm going to go and I'm going to go overseas and I'm going to pay off my credit card and leave myself with zero dollars in the bank and go somewhere where I don't have a job and see what happens. So that was London. And then Besides the professional side, I met my wonderful wife, Lynn. But that was a fair risk, marrying an English girl. And we had set up from the beginning, if we married, thankfully got pregnant, had a baby, said, if everything's going well, we're going to move to Melbourne. We're not raising our children in England. Sorry for anyone English who's listening to this. It's a wonderful place. I enjoyed my five years there thoroughly, but it wasn't where I had my heart set on raising kids. And we had that agreement from the beginning. And Harry was born in England and everything was wonderful. We start packing boxes. I quit my job. And one of my clients was a Silicon Valley startup backed by Sequoia. And they said, oh, well, if you're going to leave England and go to Australia, and they said, don't go home, go halfway home, come to Silicon Valley and be a head of marketing. And I went home to Lynn and said, uh, funny thing happened today. Got a job offer. You know, these boxes, we were just starting to pack to move to Melbourne and we've told the family we're coming home. What do you think? He's like, let's do it. So we moved to Silicon Valley two weeks later with a four-month-old baby. Wow. You must be a persuasive person to, to convince, you know, your English wife not only to, you know, leave home, but to leave home, you know, via somewhere completely different. I think it's different to that. She is a partner. Like she is a full-time, she's a partner at Accenture. She's like a, you know, an amazing, accomplished professional who shares the same values as I do, which is to go and do those scary things. And she lived and worked overseas through her time at Accenture. 
She'd taken scary paths herself. I think that's one of the things that brought us together was that ability to say, you know, what the rules are are not necessarily our rules. Uh, the constraints are not necessarily our constraints. She's far more accomplished than I am. And I think for her to attach to the ambition or to the opportunity, she's like, you know what, I'm on mat leave. We can do anything. We support each other in, in that mindset. And so I don't think I had to persuade her. In fact, it was probably the opposite. She had to persuade me because I had my heart set on coming to Melbourne to raise the kids here. She was the one who looked at me and said, you really want it, don't you? Let's do it. So it was a genuine partnership. And so what was Silicon Valley like in the, I presume this is sort of 2000s? Yeah, this is 2008, very early 2008. And we moved to Mountain View. So small town, the office was in Mountain View, home was in Mountain View. And it's sort of surprising Silicon Valley because it's just a set of small towns. And it just so happens that, Next door neighbour worked for Yahoo and on the other side worked for Oracle and LinkedIn and Facebook and this whole amazing hub of highly ambitious, high-functioning people working together on separate things or even competitive things. So it's a really compelling place, but at the same time, it's got the small town feel. So we left our front door unlocked half the time and our car unlocked. We had walked to the local park. We had you know, open street barbecues. I would say you know, 13, 14 years later, Silicon Valley is different. It was very different back then. And did you love the work straight away? You know, like the, the sort of didn't like advertising, PR was okay. Did, did you sort of end up in a startup and feel like, oh, I found my place? Look, I loved PR I would say PR for me was, we call it strategic communications. And, and most of it, what I was doing was working for startups. I did have some big tech startups, but in Australia and in, in London, I was working for agencies who serviced mostly startups or I was running the startup division. I was able to spend my life with founders. And so it wasn't a huge leap. So what I enjoyed was less about the craft of PR, but more about working with founders to help them tell their story, to create a path to market, to define a value proposition, to put language around it. And it's a really interesting process because the founders, it's part of their DNA. It's almost part of their bloodstream. And sometimes getting it out of the mouth into coherent sound bites or into coherent sort of pathways or channels or messages isn't that easy because it's so intuitive to them that it's there and bringing other people out on that journey. And it became a real sort of commercial role of not just communications but actually go to market and how do we think about building a business and so the big change for me was actually going from a consultant where you're outside the business and a really trusted advisor on multiple businesses at once to going in with one job one company I wouldn't say I loved it at once I loved being in Silicon Valley and this business was was backed by Sequoia it was Austrian founders Israeli R&D Irish CEO based in Mountain View, California. Like this was the dream. This was an MBA in in life. And to be able to go down Sand Hill Road and walk into Sequoia and the partner there or, you know, the people I knew there to say, oh, this is, you know, you see the plaques on the wall of the companies. It's Apple and it's Google and it's just incredible. And they connect you into these things. And you see how you think of Silicon Valley, or I certainly thought of Silicon Valley as this endless, you know, infinite expanse and actually it's a it's a smallish place and it's highly highly interconnected and when we talk about ecosystems you can sort of see what that 
actually is and how the organism works. And you learn a lot of lessons. You're either in it or you're not. And that's good and bad. And the power of the network effect that happens around organizations. So it's to be able to see that from within a company backed by some really high quality VCs. It wasn't just Sequoia. And to see how that impacts your success. That was really seminal to how I think about life and startups. And so how did you ever leave that sort of, as you say, once you feel like you're in with the cool kids, it must have been a wrench to, to say, right, well, there's something else I value more than this. Well, it's fair to say it did not not rip the Band-Aid off. It was a process. So the trigger for the, for the process was Jar Jar, which is the company I moved to Silicon Valley with. We sold that for a few hundred million dollars to a big European telco. We had baby number two coming, very nearly coming, a few weeks away. And it was kind of either commit to working for a European telco while based in Silicon Valley or leave now. And we said, well, let's go. It's like literally Lynn could only travel for like one more week. Um, my visa was tied to the job and wanted to be able to be there when the baby was born and not be you know, necessarily job hunting at the time. And so we really quickly packed up the house. Uh, yeah, had an amazing CEO at the time, uh, Trevor, who had done the deal, the exit was done, kept me on in the business and said, I don't mind if you do this from Melbourne. And so we moved very quickly, somehow got into a hospital and had the baby. And they were amazing, gave me some time. And so I was getting up with the baby anyway, but on Silicon Valley time. So living in Melbourne, but getting up at you know middle of the night to be up for US time, thankfully on the West Coast, so it's not too bad. Had no circadian rhythms working anyway, so that was fine. And it was an amazing existence to have family around and be able to work still in Silicon Valley. But... I spent that time kind of thinking, well, this is a six-month transition at best. I'll be here with the family. This will be amazing. And one of the amazing things about Silicon Valley is that concentration of talent like we're talking about and the taxi drivers and the restaurant workers and the people in the street are all startup founders doing something else at the time, but they're all brewing an idea. They're all coming up with something. And I was like, you know, I'm pretty smart. I reckon I can come up with something that I care about, that I can solve. And I kind of spent my time wandering around town going, I'm going to create a better something. And I was like, what is that thing that I'm going to create? And I'm so privileged and so fortunate that there was nothing I deeply cared about, actually, that I wanted to solve. Like, this life is amazing. What am I going to do? And I got a call from one of the Sequoia partners who had been involved with Jaja, who said, we're about to invest in this company in Israel. I know you're sort of transitioning out of Jaja. Would you mind helping them out doing your thing for them. I said, look, I, I'm in Melbourne. And he goes, we don't care. This guy's in Tel Aviv. You just meet him. And so, so we did and over the phone and he said, I'm going to go to Silicon Valley every month. If you go to Silicon Valley every month, we'll meet there and you work for me. I'm like, Fantastic. And so, you know, taking a job back in Silicon Valley with an Israeli founder was, again, best of both worlds. And so I was traveling a lot. It turned out to be more than every month back in Silicon Valley. And I, that's the best of both worlds. So we ended up selling that business to Facebook a year and a week after I joined. And that was very important because I had vested some stock after one year. So that's an important timing milestone. So that's kind of what I kept on doing for the next few years. Like Rand McCarvey, who, who was that founder, who introduced me to some other people and joined another company. 
My work life stayed in Silicon Valley. It did not come back to Australia. I just happened to be here for big chunks of time to be with friends and family and, and did a lot of fly in, fly out. By about 2013, something was starting to sort of to gnaw away at me. It was the startup ecosystem here didn't exist, obviously. It was there, but it was hidden. When your reference point is sort of Mountain View or Palo Alto or Menlo Park, where it's everywhere, you have to really hunt for it here. And it was starting to develop. I started to become aware of Australians doing really interesting things, both here and in the Valley. And I had no idea there was an Australian network in Silicon Valley because I'd come from London. I just didn't know it. And so I wasn't part of it. It was just part of the general melting pot. Two things sort of came of that. One was a real frustration. So I started to meet entrepreneurs here and founders here who would start to talk about what they're doing. I was like, geez, what you're doing is awesome. Like That is a genuine world-class proposition. You must be getting term sheets. And what do you mean getting term sheets? There's no, I haven't been to California yet. And I was like, well, you don't have to go to California. There's money in Australia. No, there's no money in Australia. There's no, well, hang on a second. There is a ton of money in Australia. There's got to be a way to access that money. Like the default view in 2013 was you cannot raise money unless you go to Sand Hill Road, Silicon Valley. That was it. It was binary. You don't raise money or you go there. And there was a little bit of money coming from family offices, but not a great deal. So that was pretty much, you know, the black and white versions, that was pretty much the case. And there were other people like me who obviously felt that there was a huge opportunity here and started meeting some people. So you know what? If you look at every advanced technology startup ecosystem around the world, generally they're built on one or more of three things, which is significant government structuring and incentive, commercialization of academic R&D, and commercialization of military R&D. What of those things, if any, is happening in Australia? And the answer is not a lot. They've got some amazing starting points, but it's really not happening. So I was like, well, it's going to take private sector to do this. And really fortunate position, happened to know people who happened to have investable capital, who we got a good relationship through either family backgrounds, you know, you know genuine privilege. Uh, to have those connections and been spending a lot of time with Jim Cassidy who had also come back from overseas but also had great experience with technology who also had an ambition to try and help the Australian ecosystem and so that sort of frustration that I had said it wasn't around for me to start something was coming out through this frustration on behalf of the entrepreneurs why aren't they getting these opportunities and my initial reaction I have to say was to try and and said to Lynn, well, if it's not going to happen here, if the interesting jobs aren't here, if we're just too busy building properties and digging stuff out of the ground to care about tech, this country is probably doomed. We're not going to have job opportunity and wealth creation for the next generation. The lucky country is no more. Stop it. Let's just go to Israel. Haven't lived there yet. Let's go there. And like, come on, we've moved three countries in a few years. You know, we're just sitting getting settled here. So, okay. Well, then we've got to do something. And this is around the same time. And people may or may not remember it, but Blackbird had just started. I went to talk to Paul Bassett. He said, I really like what you're thinking, but I'm about to start Square Peg. And it was just starting. It was still, if you said the term ecosystem to people, they would say, you sound like a wanker. Like it just wasn't part of the vernacular. But we certainly weren't the first or, or, or alone in thinking about it. But so we're in this position. We've got 
really interesting access to founders who are doing interesting things who are naturally coming across and we're having this real sort of kindred spirit kind of discussion. We happen to know people who have investable capital. What if we pulled it all together and said, we're going to do the hard work in trying to finding these entrepreneurs, funding that first part of their journey, helping them leap, you know, go over to Silicon Valley or go into other parts of the world but not because it's the only way they can raise capital, but because that's where the market for their product is. And that was where the name Rampersand came from, was helping these companies ramp from that early stage into the next stage of growth and success. And the and was, and whatever else it takes. And then we found out actually the ampersand that's in our name comes from academia, which is, so if, if Catherine... If, if, if I'd written a, a paper and then I passed it on to you to review, it was it was Paul and Catherine. But if we'd worked on it collaboratively, it was Paul ampersand Catherine. And so we liked that collaborative nature of the name. But that, that's sort of where it came from. And it was very organic. I was still doing fly in, fly out to Silicon Valley. It wasn't a full-time job. We said, let's put some money together and let's start backing entrepreneurs and see what happens. And So you'd had experience in understanding, you know, sort of the founder mindset and working, you know, with highly motivated startup businesses, but how hard was it to build the skills to be a great investor? Such a good question. I think we're fools fear to trade. Like we didn't know. What we what we knew well enough was we had, and in particular when we talk about privilege, in my case, a father who is incredibly commercial, well-connected. He'd been a, an M&A at a private bank, kind of merchant bank, like he used to call it. So he'd been transactional and in that kind of role for most of his career. And he was able to say, when we're coming up with these crazy ideas, a couple of things are true. One is you've got to have a portfolio. You can't just try and pick you know, single winners because no matter how smart you are or how good you are, you're going to have losers, so it has to be a portfolio. And the other thing is you need some some tension in there to do investing. So you can't just be, I want to back these founders forever. There's got to be some investment knowledge. So, so we actually set it up from the beginning with Jim and I who would, would really go out and find these founders and be a support mechanism for them to say, look, what's your journey? What do you want to achieve? How ambitious are you? How can we help? And then it came to actually investing capital. We had a couple of people in the team who had done that for a long time. And that, when we talk about the tension, is is not actually that they work against each other, it's they work together to say, we want to find the best founders in the world who happen to be in Australia, but we also want to invest the capital well. And so it's actually doing that in partnership. And that initially, I'd say Jim and I didn't really know what that meant. We have this, it's not quite literal, but the story we say is, you know, found a company we wanted to invest in, and I said to Jim, "Hey, you—you you were this uh, senior executive in a business that sold to Oracle for three billion dollars. Why don't you write the term sheet?" And he said, "You're the hot shot who just come back from Silicon Valley as the head of marketing, Sequoia-backed businesses. Why don't you write the term sheet?" So we don't know how to write a term sheet, do we? We bought it in. You know, we just—we hired that that ability. But I think the reality is, at our end of the market, you—you you need that governance. You need that structure, but it's very learnable. You become an investor fairly quickly. And if your job doesn't start with empathy for the founder, belief in their ambition, desire and ability to help them in some way, then no matter how good an investor you are, you're never going to be successful in this business because the business requires the ability to find and work and support 
and, and really love that founder journey. This is not a spreadsheets business. It's not a discount cash flow valuation. This is saying what's fair and reasonable and human centric to the journey with the appropriate level of governance that's required because you're investing other people's money. I think that's what we've learned as a firm is that combination of capabilities that they're not quite the opposite to mutually exclusive, that they have to live together. And that founder empathy piece is a recurring theme. And and it's so interesting because I think venture capital in the bad old days had a reputation for being exploitative and exclusive and unfriendly. My experience having come to the industry only recently is it doesn't feel like that in Australia at the moment. There seems to be this strong theme of being founder friendly and being respectful that it's the founders doing the work. For you, how important is it that you lived through that experience of sort of being a scrappy startup yourself, like learning how to do stuff by trying and failing and admitting you don't know everything? Oh, I think it's critical. I'm not a founder. Like I haven't built these scale-up kind of businesses. I think I've lived alongside them for a long time, and I think that's almost an advantage. I think there is to be a founder who's had success and goes on to be a venture capitalist, I think it's a really powerful path. You know, founders working with founders is really, there's a degree of empathy to that, that that is sort of hard to beat. But it doesn't always work because founders working with founders can be the alpha clash. So it takes a very special founder to be able to then go and support other founders in that way. I think knowing that you know, I've never been a one IC, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a two IC. That's sort of generally my job and to work with. Even at Rampersan? You, I mean, you're the one IC at Rampersan though. I am, but we're a service. Yes, we do think of ourselves as a, as a startup in a way and we're growing that in the same way. Funds don't grow as fast as startups grow. And so, you know, we're probably a Series B firm who's backing a bunch of companies who got to Series C, you know, so they, they outgrow us pretty quickly. What we've done, to be fair, though, is recruited people with that experience. So people like Hugh Williams, who you know, ran technology for Google Maps, like you don't, you don't get more scale than that. So we have grown the team in that way. And, and so I don't want to be sort of falsely modest. It, it is something we do. But but I think as a mindset to be able to say, like, what we are good at is supporting those kinds of founders. That's our heritage. That's what we deeply believe in. We recruit for empathy. Yeah, we recruit for that ability to add some value to someone else's journey. That's why we've got, I think, a hope, a reputation you know, of good people in the firm because they're, they're all rooted in this desire to help other people succeed and through their success that we succeed. That's our starting point. And we talk about it's not normal to be hugely successful. So therefore, we're looking to work with not normal people and not everyone can deal with that. You've got to really enjoy working with those people. They're, they're quirky and they're exciting. And if you don't wake up every day going, they're the people I want to be surrounded by, then this is not the job for you. And that's why it can be hard as I say, to come from a pure investing background where you're looking for formulas without disrespecting to investors. It's not quite true, but you've got to have a human mindset, not a spreadsheet mindset, but you've got to understand the commercials and the financials. And so I, I do, to your question, I think that try and fail and have a willingness to experiment. And we're in the failure business as much as the startups are, in fact, even more so. Their stakes are higher than ours. We know that everything's going to work. We've got to support them good and bad. And remember, this comes down to the people at the end of the day. I'm interested, you know, you sort of, your start point was, well, we're a service. 
you know, how much of what you do for startups is about the money and how much of it is about the additional value add you create? So, you know, my guess would be, you know, you're an expert, as you say, in strategic communication and about helping people tell their story in a compelling way. You know, how much of Rampersand is about building out that sort of service proposition? I get changes over time. So, you know, in 2013, 14, when we first started investing, just having money, you know, was, was rare. So that was almost a differentiation point was just, just having money and not being destructive, having alignment and having that alignment mindset. So that was kind of enough in, in a way. Uh, it was never what we felt was enough, but looking back, that was kind of enough. Thankfully, this market's grown like crazy. There's quite a lot of money now in Australia. I'll, I'll stress the point there is not enough money, particularly at Seed and Series A where we like to focus. And it's really exciting that it's grown, but there's still not enough. Having said that, I'd say it's sort of great for the founders because they've got options. So now how do they choose who they want to take money from when you're really good and everyone sort of can see it? Firstly, not everyone can see it. It's sort of hard to spot amazing people doing amazing things, sometimes before they even know it themselves. I think people will try and rationalize it by saying it is the service. You know, Paul can help me with my X problem. Nicole can help me with my, or Taryn or Chris or you know, our, you know, Hugh. And I think that functional support is really important. But to some extent, if you've raised the money, you can go and buy that. You don't necessarily need that from your venture firm. We like to think we're probably better and more aligned. So that is a value add. But fundamentally, I think what founders want is people who believe, people who can, even without lifting a finger, get the stamp of success alongside them. And so I think that's what we try and work on is it, it's a fine line. It's, people say it's pretty ironic. You, you know, you're a PR guy. You don't want to sort of PR yourself. It's not our story. It's their story. But when we talk about the fact that we we're the early backers of Sendal, we we're the early backers of Expert 360, of Schedulo, of Predict HQ, of GoTerra, these kind of companies, and apologies to the other 20-odd I haven't mentioned, it's, I don't like to pick favourite children, but that's what people want. They want to know the people who back them, are the people that increases my chance of success. We start to talk about like the, the stamp from Rampersand, that means... We stand for something. We stand for ambition. We stand for actually good values. We're going to grow. We're going to grow in a way that is going to have some value beyond just the financial. And we're not an impact firm. I don't want to go too far down that path, but I think we're pretty values-based and saying custodial care, it's not win at all cost. We do want to win though. It's not good guys finishing last. So, so what does it mean when you're backed by Rams? And it means you've got a strong technology capability. Your product's going to be really good. You're going to have a strong business plan. You're going to have strong ethics. So if you're a customer or you're an employee or you're a next round investor, you know that that diligence has been done and you can take that for granted. And that's what a venture firm, I think, really adds value. And that's why it's exciting that some of the firms in Australia are really getting that stamp. We know that you know, Blackbird, for example, with Canva and Coltram, these kind of, you know, what does it stand for? It stands for that kind of pathway and not to single them out, Square Peg, Airtree, a bunch of firms. There's fundamentally, you can rationalise the, the support platforms and we do that really well. Everyone, apart from the empathy, you've got to have a value add, you know, whether whatever that functional support is, but you've got to have that experience on the journey and you've got to stand for something. So there was a couple of names in those companies you rattled off 
that I absolutely love and, you know, if I had had the opportunity, I would have put, you know, some money into them, either from that list or others in the portfolio, can you pick out a few that sort of demonstrate what you really are looking for in a company when you back them? And also having worked with those companies, what you've learnt yourself from having, you know, partnered really closely with them. I'm going to try and spread the love. I think, you know, fundamentally, well, what we're looking for is a company, is, I wouldn't even say a company, it's founders who have identified something, some problem that they want to solve and are going to dedicate their lives to solving it that has a timing element to it. So this problem is either new or for some reason growing. and it's of a scale that when you solve it, it's really highly impactful. And then you can unpack that, you know, what does that all mean? You know, the solution that you've built is 10 times better than anything else out there, that your ambition is of that size, but also you've got a capability around building tech, we're a tech firm, so tech sits at the core of it, but tech can enable a great product. You're gonna be massively product centric. It doesn't automatically follow. You've got to build a great product. But a great product in and of itself is not a great business. So you've got to be able to take that great product and turn it into a great business. And by definition, because we're a seed fund and we like to go in at seed or the later Series A, you haven't proven any of it yet. And so what are the sort of personality types and what are the capabilities to go and build that business that doesn't exist yet, the problem that's not obvious to everyone yet? And so there's leaps of faith that we're looking to take and it fundamentally comes down to what is the insight, what are the capabilities, what are the values of those founders? So one example, and I'll, I'll pick Jigspace because it wasn't one of the ones I rattled off before and, and we love them equally. You know, we back Zach and Numa, having sort of got to know them over probably close to 12 months where they just had this notion that it was going to be 3D presentations, augmented reality, and they had this crazy idea that said humans learn better in 3D than in 2D because our entire existence has been living in 3D except for the last 50-odd, 100-odd years maybe at most. You know, knowledge transfer has been 2D for the last short period of time, but through our entire existence it's 3D. And that's the next computing paradigm that's going to happen is that we're going to live in this immersive technology world. Like, that's pretty cool. What does that actually mean? And they have this amazing background in technology to be able to build kind of what people are now calling the Canva for 3D. So it's this really simple to use, build anything presentation in 3D that you can then distribute on a phone or on an iPad or on a computer. And if you're trying to sell something, a physical product, or um, you're trying to train someone, we're trying to convey a concept in this classroom or anything like that, you can just pull it out and people can pull it apart and work through it. And the technology that's required to do that is really, really deep. And they're so good that obfuscates all the complexity and makes it really simple. And so to meet these couple of founders, one from Tassie and one from France, who've come together and said, we're going to do something that is truly of a global standard. They want this to be the standard around how technology in this space works. And 
Zach became a student of standards and like reviewed PDF. How did PDF become the standard? Like, I don't know anyone who's, you know, I know, I spend my life, I am a nerd, who's that nerdy? You know, fast forward a couple of years, they're on stage, and well, because of COVID, a virtual stage, when Apple launches the last iPhone as one of three companies showcased as part of the launch around what's happening. And, and the last Australian company to have that done was, funnily enough, Canva. And then Tim Cook is interviewed about a month ago in one of the Australian newspapers, and he mentions Jigspace as one of three companies, the most exciting companies coming out of Australia. So you know, like these guys who are very humble, who are clearly geniuses, but know how to build ambition at that level to then start to see them achieve it, that's really exciting. That's what we're looking for. It's so easy in this space to get carried away with the sort of excitement and energy of the success. What's, you know, some setbacks, failures, challenges you've had that have actually been really helpful in your learning and growth? When you're choosing the scary path, there's just shitloads of failure in it. And I think when you're setting off with that mindset, it's like it's sort of, they talk about when you have children, yeah, you know, I'm a father, not a mother, but the mother has to forget the pain of childbirth. Otherwise, you'd never do it again. And that's kind of what, what I, it's not about forgetting it and not learning from it, but it's about not dwelling. Like, funny about my professional career, like we would pitch for, you know, go for jobs, pitch for business. PR is a failure business. You're selling stories to journalists all the time who say no to you. And it's like, oh, it's heartbreaking. You're pitching for clients. You lose the job. You put in hours of work. It's heartbreaking. I think over and over and over again, failure is just an everyday part of my life. I sort of love and hate this question because I sort of go, I don't. I have such a privileged path in life. There's no moment where I've sort of gone, geez, what a terrible disaster that was. How did I ever get up off the canvas? Because there's just thousands of them, and and that's sort of the deal. And, and you know, I won't pretend there were times you know through this last few years. Venture takes a long time to prove that you're right. It's a very slow feedback loop. And there are times you go, oh, my gosh, are we doing the right thing? And because we do take this custodial duty very seriously about the founder's journey as well as our investors' money, you know, are, we, are we doing this right? You know, is this working? Are we giving good advice to the founders? Are we, have we actually made life harder for them by steering them in the wrong path? Or you know, have we blown the money or whatever it is? And, and, and founders do that more extreme than we do because at least we've got 10 or 20 or 30 companies. It's, it's their one journey. Schedulo, which is one of the companies we invest in at Seed, you know, Matt Fairhurst is one of the most resilient people I've ever come across. He's had a hell of a story. He's had personal challenges, business, ups and downs, and, and, and they just got a $100 million round led by SoftBank and just could not be more delighted for Matt as a person for that business. But that's not a linear journey that he's been on and the, sort of the failure. So, so when I think about the tragedy, you know, I haven't got any particular stories where you get up off the canvas it's just about saying this is part of life if you're going to set off on this journey keep cracking there's tough times work your way through that because the Stockdale paradox those who've read Jim Collins good to great you've got to believe that you will succeed and at the same time you've got to recognize that what you're facing in that very moment can you just explain the Stockdale paradox quickly yeah he was a prisoner of war who survived terrible prisoner of war camps for years I forget which camp he was in, I think Korea, maybe, American military. And he was asked, why did he survive and so many others didn't? And he says, basically, the optimists died. And the lesson was, 
he never lost faith that he would get out of camp alive. He, he absolutely, truly believed it. He just had no idea when, and he knew that he had to survive day by day by day in that camp and get through until whenever that came. And the optimists, on the other hand, said, to set themselves up, they said, oh, we'll be out of here by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go. And we'd be out of here by Easter. Easter would come and go. And it was those people who then died of a broken heart because they started to lose faith because they set their faith based on a piece of information or an arbitrary ambition that didn't exist and they had no control over. So you've got to face the reality that's in front of you, got to confront that, but you never lose faith in the outcome. And it's not to say you don't have your dark days because everyone does, but just that belief means that any failure along the way, any sort of micro failure or even macro, we've had companies go under, right? We've invested in companies that didn't make it. It's heartbreaking. It's tragedy. But we've got to pick up and move on. On that, I mean, obviously COVID has been that experience for all of us. It's been this enormous psychological experiment in a way. Do you think the companies that come out the end of COVID have sort of passed through a crucible that makes them stronger and more likely to succeed? Like when you're thinking about the investment landscape, is it, well, there's always challenges or do you think there's sort of something special that will be, look back to this point and say, well, there's something special about the vintage of founders that were shaped through the COVID experience? I'd probably think about it slightly differently. So I think we will, but for different, potentially different reasons. I think firstly, this is a really interesting crisis because what this has done is forced the adoption of technology upon people who before COVID didn't buy it. For years, we've talked about the opportunity of the emerging middle class of China or the emerging middle class of Southeast Asia or Brazil or whatever it is. We've got the emerging software buyer. Market. So the laggards have entered the market. So the, the market opportunity for technology sellers has just massively grown. And so that creates an interesting environment that, amongst other things, is what's bringing all this money into the investment world, partly because the tech businesses are getting so big, partly because other asset classes are suppressed and you know, bond markets, et cetera. So, but fundamentally, it's because why tech is getting the benefit because tech has just grown so much. So I think that's an interesting and really important part of the equation right now. The second piece, coming into COVID, none of us knew what was going to happen, but I was really confident, we were really confident that if anyone was going to get through it, it was going to be the startup mindset. It's going to be the ones who were there at the coalface, moving faster than anyone else. You look back through history, periods of disruption create great venture capital vintages, actually. Great companies are born out of disruption. So early doors, it was like, holy cow, what's going to happen here? You've got no access to capital, no access to markets, no access to travel. Are you going to get through? So that was probably the first two to three months of COVID. And it became a bit more clear that this was actually a huge opportunity. So I sort of think about those two things separately. So there is the sort of day-to-day human challenge of just working with the kids at home or not being able to get your team together you know, not being able to fly and travel. But I, th- I think they're really tough and I don't sort of diminish them in any way. And I do think, to your question, yes, there is a level of sort of resilience and, and scar tissue that will come through that. But startups have got that anyway. You know, it's just in different ways. You know, startups are at a fundamental disadvantage to their... In, you know, they've got less time, 
less money, less people, less brand recognition, less capital, less customers. Like they're fighting everything every day. So you don't go into startups if you're, you're not expecting to overcome. And then when the world shakes up, your best place because you're already in the mindset that I'm going to move faster than the next people. I'm going to move into this opportunity that's been created. I'm going to take advantage of this thing that didn't exist six months ago. So we are seeing like twice the number of companies pitching and, and wanting early stage capital than we saw pre-COVID. We're seeing almost all of the companies that we've invested in with some tailwind activity now around acceleration of of purchasing and, and adoption of their technology. This is actually a, an amazingly good time for startups, particularly early stage startups. Having said that, it's also the, the growth stage because of the amount of money that's in the market. It's pretty good for them too. And, and that's good for early stage companies as well. So, so yes, I think they'll develop scar tissue that's valuable, but they're in the right place to start with. You've described yourself as a curious nerd. What are some of the... Um the sort of resources that a, a curious nerd who's interested in startups or, or venture capital should be looking at books, podcasts, other stuff? Ah, well, there's, there's a whole line. I always encourage, so Good to Great is still a great book. Jim Collins. I do think uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which is sort of probably a bit of a cliche in age now, but when we first started in 2013, we bought that and gave it to every founder that we invested in because it's just a tough journey. It's a really good guide. That's Ben Horowitz. That's Ben Horowitz. I think every venture capitalist by law has to have read Sapiens. And it's really interesting, Sapiens, about you know, when you think about the evolution of humanity and how quickly we're moving. And when you put it into historical context, I think that's why I'm excited. I think anything by Kahneman and Tversk is worth looking at. They are... I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll put them in the show notes. Kahneman and Tversk, they're Israeli academic or American academics who do a lot of work around probability and risk and how bad we are at humans at really assessing it. And there's some really surprising, it's very readable stuff, most of this, well, some of their books. I'll, I'll send you some examples. Podcast just goes on. Um, I think a good starting point is the, the Reid Hoffman podcast. He interviews founders and talks about all of their journeys. <laughs> I love listening to people like um, you know, Jay Cal and David Sachs, the All In Pod. All In. That's, I mean, that's one of my weekly highlights, actually. Like Sunday morning, I'm like, has it dropped yet? Has it dropped yet? It's, it's ridiculous because I don't agree with them on lots of stuff, but it's so entertaining. I think because they don't agree with each other on just about everything. And I think that's what they've done really well is like, yeah. and I think that's part of the challenge for the world is that we don't put ourselves in other people's shoes anymore. Like just bring it to the fore, confront other people's opinions. It makes good entertainment. And, but I think there's some snippets of really cool stuff out there around the companies they're involved in or how they think about investing or why they're excited about certain thematics that, that I really like it too. So last question, what advice do you have for ambitious entrepreneurs if they're thinking about raising capital? Talk to people now get started. One of the toughest things for people to do and one of the reasons we started in the first place is because you don't have the answers. You haven't lived it yet. You get the benefit of other people's experience. You're not alone. As you said, Catherine, it's a, it's a really good ecosystem here. Most people who are investing in this country really are good-natured in their approach. And so 
there's lots of resources. I actually think our research tells us there's too many resources. You know, you can be really caught up in you know, trying to read every blog and carry and, and, and everything for, for every piece of advice is an equal and opposite piece of advice. So just start talking to people. Your idea has no value. You're not going to get it stolen. If you can't execute on it, it, it it's not valuable anyway. So don't hold it too tight. Seek out people who can, who've been on that journey, whether they're investors or founders or employees, just go and learn and immerse yourself Focus on what you're doing, of course, like that's got to be your primary thing. Just make progress, but learn from others. And one of the things we used to say when we set up the fund was, you know, go back to that story. If you're an Australian entrepreneur, why aren't you getting any term sheets? If you were walking down the street at Sand Hill Road or in Tel Aviv or New York, or whatever it is, you would get, not just be getting term sheets, but you'd be getting them from people who'd done it before. And instead of starting on the ground floor, you'd go to the third floor. And getting to the ground floor on the third floor takes a lot of time a lot of energy and a lot of money and you're kind of tired by the time you get there whereas if your competitors have already just taken the elevator straight up and they're just getting started then you're at a comparative disadvantage and we want to avoid that we don't think australian founders or new zealand founders should have to face that battle and thankfully today they don't so that's the advice just it's out there you're not alone benefit from other people's wisdom don't try and solve every problem yourself when it comes to raising money it's an enabler of your success. It isn't success. And so, yes, it's a bit of a job. You know, you've got to run it like a bit of a project. But there's different values of money. Like we were saying before, like what do you want from an investor? Find the ones who believe in you. You've got to deal with them. You know, venture investments last longer than a lot of marriages and harder to get out of. So do get to know the people. You know, it's a two-way street. Well, thank you. It's so fabulous to spend time with you. And you're very generous, not only, you know, sharing your time today, but, you know, you've been fabulous in helping to shape the ecosystem here in Australia. And, and you're, you know, one of the people that's always around to share your experience. And I think it's made a big difference in shaping the tone of, of the ecosystem we enjoy today. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. I hope it's true. Uh, enjoy the rest of your week and uh, we'll be hearing lots more success from you, I'm sure. Thanks, Catherine. Really appreciate it. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.